Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Good morning, Bill Handel and uh, the morning crew. Thursday morning, December 9th. Yeah, we're heading into uh, that season again for sure. Some of the big stories that we are covering, uh, the jurors in the uh, Jesse Smollett case are expected to resume deliberations today, Uh, and California is considering $500 fines for water wasters uh, because of this worsening drought. Even in the midst of this rain, it looks like it's not going to be a very rainy winter, which, of course, we desperately need. Now, the Supreme Court... one, one of the most anticipated cases in decades and decades is going to be looking at Roe v. Wade and a couple of cases going up. And uh, it's uh, it can be pretty narrow. And uh, even though Roe v. Wade itself is not being attacked directly, the court could easily say, you know, uh, we're going to get rid of Roe v. Wade as a constitutional right for uh, to abortion. Uh, so as a result of that, the court is actually going to overturn Roe v. Wade, maybe not on its face, uh, but certainly uh, allow it de facto to be overturned by allowing the states to pass any any kind of law to restrict it. Six weeks, 15 weeks, uh, those numbers. So in any case, uh, let's move on. And I want to share with you what California is doing. You've got two dozen states, uh, 26, I think, states. Abortion will be illegal. That's it. If Roe v. Wade is overturned on his face, and if not, they're going to make it impossible to do so. California is going the other way completely. We are the liberal state, and no kidding on this issue. Uh, California clinics, abortion clinics, and their allies, who happen to be in the state legislature, revealed a plan to make the state a sanctuary for uh, people seeking reproductive care, read abortions in this case, because that's really where the issue is in terms of birth control, et cetera. People aren't that upset about it. But here is part of the sanctuary state concept, uh, possibly paying for travel, lodging, procedures for people from other states. Whoa. So the California Future of Abortion Council so an organization of about 40 abortion providers and advocacy groups uh, released a list of 45 recommendations. And among them is uh, paying for abortions for out-of-state women who are pregnant. I mean, that is, and who are poor, by the way, because obviously women of uh, means are going to come over here and they don't have to worry about it. It's always the poor that get nailed on this stuff. So uh, some of the state's most important policymakers actually helped write this stuff. And you know who started the group? Gavin Newsom started the group. And he said, we'll be a sanctuary. Patients will likely travel to California from other states to seek abortions. 
We're looking at ways to support that inevitability and looking at ways to expand our protection. So our protection. So uh, as states are going to make it harder and harder and harder and possibly completely illegal and criminal to perform an abortion, here comes California saying not only do we allow it, we're going to help you get it right here in California. Now, here's something that a lot most states don't do. California already pays for abortion for low-income residents through the Medicaid program. And we're one of six states that require private insurance companies to cover abortions. Although there are co-pays and deductibles, et cetera. And by the way, in terms of the money, how dare we pay that money? I mean, we should spend that money on Californians. Uh, money's not going to be a problem. The state is awash in money. I mean, the surplus uh, next year, according to the Independent Legislative Analyst's Office, is going to be $31 billion on top of tens of billions last year. I mean, even during the pandemic, money was coming in. Uh, So uh, Planned Parenthood uh, got a sneak peek of how people might seek abortions outside their home states this year when that Texas law outlawed abortion after six weeks uh, that uh, was signed into law by the governor of Texas. And you think people come rushing into California. They really didn't. There was just a slight increase in patients from Texas. No one understands why. So uh, the report recommends funding, uh, including public spending. So there'll be probably a combination of grants and public spending to help people, uh, to help women obtain abortions who come in from out of state, uh, including travel expenses, child care, lodging, ask lawmakers to reimburse abortion providers for services for people who can't pay. I mean, this is pretty far-reaching. Now, is that going to happen? Well, the recommendations are saying, yes, please let it happen. Now, normally crazy recommendations, not that this is crazy. Let's say far-reaching recommendations are uh, aspirational for the most part. Not this one. Man, this one's probably going to happen simply because of the way we feel. Now, we don't know how many people are going to come to California. We talk about uh, there's going to be this huge influx of women who seeking abortion coming to California from these states that make it illegal. California doesn't collect or report abortion statistics. We don't know. Uh, According to the uh, Guttmacher Institute, a research group that supports abortion rights, uh, 132 abortions were performed in California, uh, 15% of all abortions nationally. But it doesn't break down insurance, private pay, how many people came in from out of state anyway. So they don't know. And Planned Parenthood Uh, accounts for about half of the abortion clinics in the state. Now, uh, according to uh, Fabiola Korean, who is at the National Health Law Program, says, let me tell you, a huge uh, uh, influx is going to destabilize our abortion provider network. Uh, And the other problem is, is that women will come into California to have abortions performed at a later date than they would have at home. Making the arrangements, uh, waiting, And, of course, later-term abortions are more dangerous. They're more complicated. So we'll see what the state has to uh, say. Oh, also, on top of that, let me tell you what another recommendation, uh, which may come into law. It asks lawmakers uh, to help clinics increase their workforce uh, by giving scholarships to medical students who pledge to offer abortion services in rural areas, helping them pay off student loans, assist with their liability insurance premiums. It's a lot like small towns 
throughout the United States will either pay a premium, in some cases a large premium, for doctors to come and practice in the towns, be the town doctor, or in this case, uh, and boy, is this going to have some kind of uh, a, a backlash, uh, we'll give you a scholarship to medical school if you pledge to come in and go into rural areas and offer abortion services. Let's move over to the drought. Ah, here it is, third straight year, and officials are tightening limits. Now, we've already been asked to reduce our water usage by 15% by Governor Newsom, and we've made a big 3% dent, or not even 3%. And if you look at the state's water reservoirs, well, well below average, although it's they've been lower a couple of times, uh, several of them less than a third of their capacity. And how do we get them uh, full again? You look for rain and snow. Uh, but that's not very promising. Uh, the precipitation levels are just not going to be doing what they should be doing. Now, the fact that it's raining, it has been raining and will for over the next several days, a couple of storms coming in, uh, it's both bad and good. Uh, the good news is, is the great, this, this is the kind of rain we want. And that's this gentle rain that comes down, uh, let's say drizzly plus, uh, and certainly not a heavy rain or even a medium rain. And that you want, uh, that we want uh, to go on for days and days and weeks because you don't get floods. Uh, the ground absorbs the water uh, in a way that doesn't cause uh, damage uh, to the ground ca- uh, crevices being uh, torn up. Uh, it's it, Well, you know what happens when we have floods. It's crazy. And floods happen as a result of rainstorms coming in. Now, the problem is uh, the Sierra Nevada. This is where we get an enormous amount of water from. Uh, it's one of the several places we get it, but this is our homegrown water. Uh, California's cities, farms, and we grow over a third of the vegetables in the country, two-thirds of the fruit and nuts. Those industries, those farm industries, rely on the runoff from the snowpack up in the Sierra Nevadas. That's the problem, the snowpack. Because uh, the deeper the snowpack, uh, the more... Water is available as the snow melts during the spring. And guess what? We're not getting very much of it for sure. Now, our rain and snow in California uh, fall mainly in the mountains uh, and primarily in winter and spring. Uh, But here's what happens. Uh, We have to get through the summer. And to get water to Southern California, which is semi-arid, parts of it are desert, you do, you, we need uh, the flood control. And so what we did over the past century is develop a whole system of reservoirs, tunnels, canals. Matter of fact, the largest project in the state uh, was put into place by uh, Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's dad, uh, the state aqueduct system. And uh, it's an extraordinary project. It delivers water from the northern Sierra to the southern half of the state. Uh, and the problem is is that it should give us water on a regular level. Now we go back to flooding. When there is heavy rains, too much water builds up too quickly, and what happens and then flows into the reservoirs, and what happens is flood control comes in. Water has to be released because there's just too much for a very short period of time. Well, that doesn't help anybody. And then the problem becomes uh, that the droughts get droughtier. And we have, uh, we're in the middle of a multi-year uh, dry period. So let me give you uh, a couple of stats. Over the past 1,100 years, 
there has been at least one dry period lasting from two to four years each century. There have been two in the past 35 years. 1987 to 92, 2012 to 2015. uh, And we remember those, the last time those happened. And then drought, uh, that precipitates our use of water uh, being diminished. And then we're now talking about lawns not being watered. Do you remember the last time uh, people spray painted their lawns green and you couldn't wash your car and you couldn't wash your, uh, your driveways or sidewalks? Uh, and they asked you to limit uh, even toilet flushing uh, the first time around 1987 to 1992. Honest to God, they asked people to uh, diminish their use of water in the toilet. There was a great phrase that was out there, and it was actually used by officials uh, when talking about water usage. Uh, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. What? Yeah, it got that bad. And then we have rising global temperature that affects the runoff from the Sierra Nevada and uh, Sierra Nevada in terms of the amount of water it produces or the mountains produce 60% of California's developed water system. That's a lot. So water storage is the answer, right? Uh, Not really. Now groundwater, if there isn't enough water coming in, Uh, is then used. But here's the problem. Groundwater has to be replenished. And it is replenished during the wet periods of the year. Well, what's going on is the state has been pumping out more water than the replenishment water coming in. And parts of the state rely 100% on the Colorado River. uh, And the dams there provide uh, for several years of water storage, but there isn't runoff to fill the dams. So those are way, way below uh, their not only capacity, but their history of the amount of water that's coming in. I mean, it's uh, we're, we're looking at some tough times, but are we going to do it? Yeah, we are because uh, we did it. We cut water supply 25 percent. And then the allocation uh, from the state water systems uh, is now zero. It's been down to 5 percent. It is zero. There will be no additional water supplies brought in. So that means everybody has to. Uh, they have to tighten their belts for sure. And the farmers, uh, industry, and consumers. And so be prepared for looking at water at one of those issues that we just have to deal with. It's the cost of doing business. Traffic is the cost of doing business in Southern California. And conserving water, uh, to a great extent, will be uh, the cost of business. Let me go to uh, Brad Garrett, ABC News and Crime Terrorism Analyst in I want to talk about the 30% increase in homicides, the largest single-year jump in 60 years. Uh, Brad, thanks for joining us, as always. I'm assuming the defund the police movement is pretty dead right now, isn't it? I I would say so. I mean, that's obviously one spoke of the wheel, so to speak, Bill, as to why we have problems, distrust of the police, uh, record number of retirements, people quitting the police, difficulties in police agencies, recruiting new officers. I mean, all that translates into less crime solved, less proactive police work. <clears throat> and maybe when it comes to homicides, the number of homicide detectives that may have retired, because as you well know, it, <clears throat> it takes a lot of years to become proficient at, at investigating homicides. Sure. 
Is that the number one reason that's given? You got a dog in the background there? Well, no, it's, the dog is like next door. Yeah, Sorry. kick it. So, now, sh- you know, yeah, you, if you kick yeah. it hard enough, it'll shut up. I, I hear you. Okay. Uh, so is uh, the number one reason uh, that crime is up? I mean, you know, there are a bunch of reasons, but is it that the absence of police? To a certain extent. I mean, if you think about if numbers are down, you still have to patrol the streets. You may have to pull uh, uh, people from plain clothes to actually work the street. And so as a result, what you end up with is less investigative work and more what I would just call reactive police work, where you're just basically trying to put out fires. You're not really thoroughly investigating. I mean, if you break down, because Los Angeles obviously is a very ethnic, ethnically diverse place, right? You have a, you know, a lot of people of color, et cetera, and so on. So each one of those neighborhoods is unique. If you have a homicide problem in a particular area, then the cops really have to have a relationship with people in that area, which would include, include obviously, store owners, uh, people in the schools, uh, people that just live in the community that will turn to the police because a friend, a neighbor, a relative, as they know about a shooting. It's those incidental pieces of information that lead the police to solving the case. I will tell you, because they've worked these type of cases, they're incredibly difficult to maintain those relationships. And when you don't have experienced cops to work on them, you can see where this goes. Less solved, your clearance rate drops. I mean, in some cities, it's below 50%. Um, And you're having trouble recruiting people. And for sure, you're having trouble holding or keeping people on the job that may well have 10 years ago, five years ago, stayed longer than their 20 or 25 years. So uh, one of the stats that's out there, we've been discussing this issue, policing relative to crime and uh, obviously the issue of excessive force used by by cops, which is a real uh, topic of conversation because that is real. Uh, But the only stat that has ever come out of those studies, there has never been a stat that shows that community uh, activism, not the police, brings down crime. That doesn't exist. These are all theories that happen. The one stat that is there, real simple, the more cops, the less crime. It's just that simple. And Go ahead. I think very generally speaking, Bill, I think that's true. Do I think communities, the non-sworn people, I'm not not talking about informants, et cetera, can help. Like there's a a term you may or may not know called violence interrupters. These are people that are from these particular neighborhoods I'm describing that maybe had been to prison or been in jail, whatever it might be, that now actually work with trying to defuse violence. Because let's face it, they have much more effect in a community than you or I would maybe walking in there if we were police officers or homicide detectives. I mean, I'm just using that as an example. No, no, there, are, there are things you can do to reduce violence in communities other than what the police are doing. No, understood, but it's the police working with those people. Uh, uh, totally. It's, it's totally. Uh, We have to go back. Well, now we have to. We'd, I'd like us to go back, and I don't even know if that's possible anymore, to the cop walking the beat in the neighborhood. Knew everybody uh, you know, would get free donuts, which they don't do anymore, uh, and just literally could walk up to anybody and know them by name in the entire neighborhood. And it, it, it went on for years, and the uh, and the, the neighborhood uh, adored this cop. 
uh, and trusted him. Usually it's a him. Uh, in those days, is that ever going to come back? Is that possible? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we're we're pretty much uh, hooked on cars, and obviously cars are terrific. You can move a lot of people, get places quickly. But, yes, do I think we can still do that? Maybe not to the degree that you're talking about, but I think so. There, there's got to be a middle ground here where there are officers that, you know, like a particular section of Los Angeles, and they want to stay there. They want to work there. They know the store owners and so forth and so on. We have to have a version of that because that's what is so effective when something happens. I mean, I don't know how many times here in D.C. when I'm working a homicide, I will run down a, a street officer, usually older, that's been in a particular neighborhood, and I'll just go to him or her and say, this is what I've got. Who does it fit? Because I think he came from this neighborhood. And they'll name off four people, right? That's what we're missing. And or potentially missing. And so uh, I'm not suggesting that's easy to do. I mean, Los Angeles is a huge place. It's spread out. It's almost I mean, you can't work Los Angeles without a car. No, you can't. Although, you know, there was a time when they did, but there was a lot smaller population. uh, And uh, you're right here in the city, it's going to be virtually impossible. But to your point, you can assign the same cops. Uh, living in that, we're not living, but working that same neighborhood, and they're cars, so they're driving around, but they get to know people, and exactly. uh, it's uh, and that is critical. I mean, so it's not a question of defunding the police. Obviously, it's a question of funding the police and just working at a different model. And I don't right. know you know if that. Go, go ahead. Right, and 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 being very uh, aware as to who you hire, and do you are you hiring people that yes X when you know when the action starts. And they have to be more aggressive or they have to use deadly force that they will. But it's not the first thing they think about. And to be able and that's, you know, that's not easy. Sometimes departments don't pay enough to hire people at that, you know, at that right. quality. So it, it, it's there's so many things that affect this homicide number that you can't just fix one. You really have to address in some version all of them. All right, Brad, thank you, uh, as always, uh, for uh giving your views on this and the information you bring to the table. You're welcome. One of the things about uh, George Gascone, and I'm not a big fan of his, uh, he is more, he's the LA district attorney, but he's more of a defense attorney than anything else. And uh, among other things that he has done is he has directed uh, the almost thousand prosecutors that work in the office to simply not charge uh, people involving 13 categories of low-level misdemeanors. You don't get charged. Driving on a suspended license, drug, drug paraphernalia, public intoxication, you're not going to get charged, or at least not for a misdemeanor. Now, uh, to be fair, those misdemeanor charges only occur when uh, there are, uh, they they call for misdemeanor charges when there are extenuating circumstances. For example, repeat offenses, you'll get charged. But for the most part, first time out, you're not going to get hit at all. It's a special directive uh, 20-07. And has it led to a uh, decline in crime? Well, no, but it certainly has led in a decline in which the DA charges misdemeanors. That's for sure. Under this particular policy, special directive 20-07, prosecutors filed charges 13% of the time where they could have charged 100%, only 13%. Jackie Lacey, the former DA, during her second term, these types of cases were charged 89% of the time. 
Now, uh, a couple of things, and I want to point out something that I think uh, that George uh, Gascon actually has a point on. Uh, First of all, you got a lot of people, you know, academics, community groups, regressive ones, say changes are necessary because of the bloated and unequal criminal justice system. Uh, And, of course, because of the disparity uh, in color, uh, those who are minorities get hit the most. We've heard that story. But I'll tell you what does make sense. And that is uh, the fact that George Gascoigne is looking at a misdemeanor arrest and saying that that it's not just a misdemeanor arrest or charging of a misdemeanor. Uh, uh, quoting Harvard law professor Alexandra uh, Nadapoff, who wrote a book about this and she teaches at Harvard, uh, the record of the misdemeanor arrest can haunt a person for life. Uh, people accused of misdemeanors now are, uh, or arrested or given a citation if found guilty. First of all, you have a sentence of up to a year in jail and a fine of a thousand dollars. That never happens. I mean, usually it's no jail time, but the record of the conviction of a misdemeanor that stays with you. It can ruin your credit. It can disable your ability to get a job, a loan, housing. Now you're no, and most people don't discriminate unless you've been convicted of a felony, I mean, am I going to hire someone who's been convicted of a misdemeanor, uh, drunk driving? Uh, yeah, if I know about it, I'm not, I don't want you to work for me. And that's the problem. So it's when you think about it, it's not that you don't do the crime. It's that there's going to be no record of the crime on the record, uh, which means, well, you've been arrested for a misdemeanor. No, no, uh, the cops don't arrest me. The DA doesn't prosecute. So I'm clean as a whistle. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the other hand, uh, you've got low-level crimes, which I consider low-level crimes, and that involves uh, drugs, drug paraphernalia, even drug sales, uh, I think, are nonviolent crimes. I wouldn't prosecute. But at the same time, burglary, if someone steals $750, let's say shoplifting, I'd go for a felony on that one because there is an explosion of those going on. And ever since uh, the uh, DA here in uh, L.A., George Gascon decided uh, that the that shoplifting and the state legislature under 950 bucks, you don't even get cops don't even bother. So shoplift to your heart's consent, uh, content. If um, if you're under 18, you can shoplift all you want. How's that? I want to talk about personal privacy for a moment. And we're obviously on the cusp of a revolution. Well, actually, most of it is already here. Uh, And I find it fascinating that you or us, general public, we uh, are okay with Costco, your Ralph's, uh, Walmart, knowing everything about us, literally everything, Uh, where we shop, where we live, uh, what we like to shop for, what time we shop, uh, just, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, Pizza places, I I called Domino's yesterday, they know all about me, oh yeah, you live here, oh yeah, you like this, it's all on the computer. Uh, now that's not so bad, but how about 
the algorithms out there, uh, Amazon has, Facebook has, that truly know all about you, how come that one's okay? Or uh, you're less sensitive to that than the government, for example, collecting the data. So let me tell you what's going on with a government collection uh, uh, concept. Uh, this is in South Korea. South Korea is a very interesting country. So uh, they have an experimental project uh, of the city of the future. And robots are going to be patrolling the streets and mowing the grass and delivering packages. Homes will be powered by renewable energy, uh, excess electricity. They're shared with your neighbors or sold to the grid. Benches, street lights, trash cans will be internet connected to optimize efficiency. Right, A trash can is full or about to be full. It sends uh, the information to the trash collection people. I mean, it's fascinating. Or uh, let's say too many people are sitting on a bench for too long a time. We put another bench in there. How do you know? Well, the computer tells you. Residences' vitals will be monitored. And you have AI-equipped gyms that will obviously know how hard you exercise, what weight you should go uh, to, and offer health tips. Then you've got sensors, meters, cameras. Inside and outside, it's going to be around-the-clock surveillance. Now, already, if you go to London, if you go to the inner city of London, that one-mile section of London City, every single inch of those streets have cameras pointed at them. You cannot walk one foot in London without a uh, closed-circuit television looking at you. And then the big TVs uh, that the monitoring stations have, the police, uh, those those areas of the police, you, 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 what I, I guess command centers is uh, the way you'd look at it. And so that's already here uh, in, in some sense, but this one in South Korea goes a whole lot further. And then the question is, do you give up convenience safety for your privacy? Stephen Feldstein, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, says the idea that you have any kind of anonymity is, is just disappearing in public, uh, disappearing in uh, public spaces, but in private life also. And he, may, and he has a point. He goes, the way my kids now are being tracked, their medical information, the music they stream, what they watch, all of it recorded, noted, accessed in different ways, they're already used to it. I mean, the people that are more upset, most upset about privacy being invaded, their privacy being invaded is uh, those over, what, uh, 25, 30 people of our generation. We're the ones that are pissed off because we're not used to this. And our kids are growing up being used to technology, being used to uh, technology, being used for everything out there. And uh, part of it, is uh, simply overseeing and, 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 I guess, invading our privacy, or if you look at it the other way, uh, algorithms that make it easier for us to deal with life more convenient, and part of that is uh, finding out all about us. So South Korea was uh, developing and relying on a software uh, for the smart city projects, and then when COVID hit, they changed it around. They repurposed it for uh, and became an epidemiological tool. Oh, God, good for me. Uh, and what it did is allow contract tracers to car target a person's cell phone location, day, uh, credit card usage, movements, literally in a matter of minutes. How is that for invasion of privacy? 
But let me tell you what happened. Uh, it was instant, meticulous tracking. And South Korea, one of the least affected countries in the world by COVID. To give you an idea, in the United States, we had 240 COVID deaths for every 100,000 people. South Korea had eight per every 100,000. So compare the number eight to 240,000 and South Korea, what they do is credit the fact that they were able to instantly track, categorize, and deal with people who had been who either had COVID or had been exposed to someone who had COVID. And I'm willing to guess been exposed to someone who was exposed to someone who had uh, who had COVID. So uh, there's a blogger who's very famous in South Korea. And she is actually asking people to move, move into this smart city project. And what she's been saying, and it makes sense, uh, this is the way we've already been living. You know, I, I use a smartphone. And of course, uh, that's available instantly to anybody that wants to hack in or, well, the NSA, National uh, Security Agency of the United States, they listen to every single phone call that is made on a cell phone in the United States, everyone. And then they have these huge programs that then go in and uh, parse out words and phrases to figure out if there's a threat. Now, they don't care about where you are, what you do. That's not the point of uh, that kind of surveillance. But it's every phone call. And that's a technology that exists. So uh, this young lady, she was already using a smartphone, a fitness tracker tracker bracelet. Uh, There was a dash cam uh, in her car. I mean, all of it is there. And then the question is, is it worth it? Is privacy worth it? And to a lot of people, uh, yes. To a lot of people, no. But privacy is going to disappear. I mean, it's already there. I mean, I, I get questions I handle on the law all the time. My neighbor is videoing me uh, when I walk down the street. Yep, sir can. You have no privacy. And that's the reality, although we are going to get uh, a lot more convenience. So there is the question, which way do you want to go? And really, there the answer is you. there's nothing you can do about it. So welcome aboard. It looks like the court is going to take another step in requiring states to pay for religious education. Uh, there is a law in Maine that says uh, the uh, public money uh, can be used for private schools. Matter of fact, uh, they'll pay the tuition like they do pay the tuition public schools, so to speak. Uh, However, uh, Maine is excluding religious schools from that state tuition program. And this mainly has to do with rural areas. And uh, it's pretty wonky. It really was made, the law was made for kids that don't have a school anywhere near them other than perhaps religious schools. And uh, Maine uh, said Uh, We're going to subsidize those kids, the tuition, but not totally religious schools, schools that may be owned by a religion, but are secular in and of themselves. They don't push religion. That's okay. And that's according to uh, the representative, the attorney representing Maine, Christopher Taub. And it has to do with simply uh, separating out its separation of church and state, which has been. Um, a, uh, uh, it's been an item. It's been a 
significant part of our history, and it's gotten more and more broad separation of church and state. But it's interesting. If you go back to uh, the First Amendment, this is what it's all based on. And I'm going to quote here. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um, Okay, then the freedom of speech and everything else goes on. But the first one is establishment of religion. So Congress can make no law establishing a religion or in any case, uh, the free exercise of religion. All right, that's what it says. Not a word about separation of church and state. And that grew out of that where you cannot, where there is a firewall between religion and the state that came out of that. By the way, it didn't have to go that way. Uh, the courts could have totally gone the other way. For example, uh, the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, you might as well eliminate a well-regulated militia because that doesn't count anymore. And no one cares about a well-regulated militia. And even though the words are right there in the Constitution, we ignore that. So it depends on, and that's what the courts have done. So it depends on where one sits. And in this case, uh, this firewall between religion and the state, that is disappearing too. Because effectively what's being argued among religious schools is, hey, you allow private schools to be subsidized. We're a private school. We just happen to be religious. Well, here is the problem. And this is what Maine says is a, uh, when you talk about a religious school, they push religion and they discriminate against people who are not religious. And the schools will tell you, yeah, it's exactly what we do. We're a religious school. We're a, a Christian academy. And we put Christian values in every single thing that we teach. I mean, not only do they admit they're discriminatory, they are proud of the fact they're discriminatory. Okay, and that's fair in a religious school. Then the issue becomes, does the state subsidize that? Does that violate the First Amendment? Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. What does tuition to a religious school have to do with separation here? Uh, under the First Amendment. Well, it's how broad the First Amendment has been interpreted. I mean, that's uh, it's it's very broad. Now the court is bringing it way back. And uh, here's the bottom line. If ABC non-religious private school gets state money, uh, then ABC religious school gets state money because this is all about educating our young people and just the fact that one is a religious school and pushes its religious values, that is no longer important. Uh, there is really no distinction between the two. And that's what the court is going to decide. And guess what? Uh, that's the way the court is going to go. Uh, you're going to see the freedom of religion concept be expanded yet again. And it really started uh, during the Trump administration and this very conservative court. You know, for example, uh, restrictions on attendance at religious gatherings during COVID. Court threw that one right out. You can't restrict. Uh, Philadelphia's attempt to borrow that Catholic agency, uh, and uh, the Catholic agency refused to work with same-sex couples uh, in their foster parent program. Court said, absolutely, you're allowed to do that. Uh, then we have the Trump administration uh, ruling, uh, and the court said, that's fine. Uh, employers with religious objections uh, can deny contraception services coverage to female workers. And it, discrimination laws don't apply to teachers at religious schools. We can 
discriminate all day long based on religion because we're a religious school. Now, can you imagine in your hiring, say you have a company and you don't hire a Catholic or a Muslim or a Jew or a Wiccan because they're following their religion? I, you know, I don't like that. No, I don't like uh, people who don't believe in uh, Jesus or don't believe in Allah. You're, you're not going to be hired. How illegal is that? Religious schools, you can do it. Discrimination is allowed, and the courts absolutely have said that. And you're going to see, well, the, the court, and we're talking about the Supreme Court, so you're going to see it become much, much more conservative and lean towards uh, the separation of church and state as being no separation anymore. Uh, the state's going to be all over it, and the churches are going to be all over it. I have a Success from Scratch segment to share with you, and this is a fun one. Uh, because you wonder where people get these ideas and where they come from. And uh, sometimes it's serendipitous. Uh, sometimes uh, it's uh, an epiphany. The light bulb goes off. Uh, this has to do with uh, both. And this is how cup of noodles came into being. Actually called cup noodles. But cup of noodles is a brand, but that's what we all know about it. And you go to any convenience store, it's there, and you think of dorm rooms and cheap calories. Uh, but it was first marketed in Japan 50 years ago, in 1971. And it was uh, an English name, Cup Noodles. And for some reason, initially, the S was left off because of a translation mistake. And we know what all of these are. These are portable instant ramen uh, eaten with a fork right from their containers. And you heat them up in the microwave or put boiling water in there either way. And the uh, cup noodles were created by the same guy who invented instant ramen. See how the two are connected? Uh, Ando Mumafuku. Uh, in 1948, he founded a company called Nissan Foods. Now, this was post-war Japan, where people were just dead broke. And America literally owned Japan. And it was a fascinating Occupation of Japan, uh, Douglas MacArthur was really the dojo of Japan for those years, right until the Korean War. I mean, he ran Japan, uh, established the Constitution, and did, did a hell of a job. So what happened because of American occupation, uh, it, that's how baseball started in Japan, because Americans played it, and boy, we're going to do anything American. So what? Uh, this was war-torn Japan, and Ando was watching people line up to purchase cheap bowl, bowls of noodles— from stands, you know, out on the street. This is black market stuff. And the noodles were made from wheat flour donated by the United States. And what Ando wanted to do is make noodles that people could easily eat at home because they weren't making it at home. They were buying it from these stands. So he builds a laboratory, sort of a laboratory shed in his backyard. And then he just tries and tries and tries. And in 1958, now this is 10 years after he founded the company, 1958, inspiration struck. Aha! Although they don't do that in Japan. He observed his wife frying tempura. And he noticed that the oil removed all the moisture. And then he said, you know, fried and dried noodles could be re-moisturized when boiled. And you could put seasoning powder on it and dehydrated toppings. And all of a sudden you have all of these flavor combinations possible. And the reason he chose chicken as the first flavor... Why? Because chicken soup has a reputation of being rich, nutritious, and it's American. So 
Chicken Ramen, that's uh, C-H-I-K-I-N, Chicken Ramen came into being. It cost six times the price of a bowl of fresh noodles. And so he had trouble attracting uh, investors. So what he did, and something very smart, he bypassed all the stores, bypassed distributors, and went directly to the public, tasting events. And it caught on. Later became one of the most prevalent foods in post-war Japan. So now we go to the mid-1960s. And Japan sales of chicken ramen and spinoff products like spaghetti. Uh, it was an instant, instant spaghetti created in 1964, uh, basically along the same lines. And uh, those sales dropped off because of market saturation. There were just too many of them. Uh, and at the time, uh, well, here's what he did. He goes, okay, market is saturated here. Where am I going to go? Well, what's the best market in the world? The United States. Now, keep in mind, uh, Japanese food was here in the United States, but it was sukiyaki. You know, it was, uh, certainly sushi didn't exist here. Beef and vegetables cooked in a hot pot. And why were they so popular? Because it seemed, boy, Japanese that's exotic. Uh, yet, it still fits the American palate. And Ando believed that, you know, instant ramen could do the same thing. I'm going to take that and make this an American product. So in 1966, he travels to the U.S. to promote chicken ramen. And what he was surprised to see is people who bought the ramen would break off pieces of the dried noodles and then put them into a cup and pour boiling water over them instead of preparing the chicken ramen in a pot and serving it in a bowl, which is what was happening in Japan. So, okay, we have a whole new way of manufacturing and selling our chicken ramen. So Ando returns to Japan, and he sets out to create this new product inspired by American preparation techniques to sell in Japan. So he took a Japanese product, moved it to the United States, found out what Americans did, aha, and then moved the product back to Japan with the American spin on it. See, it's good stuff. So we go forward, and after a lot of trial and error, now a cup of noodles is already successful. It was originally meant to be put in a pot and then boiling water put on it, and the noodles expand, and you can put stuff on it. Uh, that was the dry noodles that he created, actually, uh, the dehydrated noodles. Well, in the United States, when he came to sell the product, and he did, he noticed that people were just tearing off chunks of it, little bits of pieces, adding stuff, putting in a cup, and pouring boiling water. He goes, wow, that's a great idea. So he takes that back to Japan and starts selling the Americanized version of cup of noodles. So after a lot of trial and error, now we're talking uh, in uh, the 60s, uh, his team, you know, it's a company now, devised a way to wrap plastic foam around the dried noodles. Uh, and the reason the plastic uh, dried noodles are in the middle because they expand. Different flavors were added. Uh, the cup had a pullback lid. And aha! We have cup of noodles the way we know it. And you know who designed the logo? Uh, the guy who designed the logo for the 1970 World's Fair. And he designed it to look cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitan sort of cutting edge, large English words in a red psychedelic font above small Japanese words, uh, gold bands inspired by dinner plates, expensive dinner plates. And so he went back to... His original marketing scheme, his original marketing plan, and that's bypassing the stores, bypassing the distributors, uh, because no one was very excited on that front. So he went back and did a taste test with the public. 
Oh, man. He did some taste tests. One was held uh, in Tokyo's Ginza Shopping District. This was 1971. More than 20,000 of these cup of noodles were sold in four hours. And he also pitched the product to workers on the move. And here is the biggest media boost they had. There was coverage of a hostage crisis uh, that was uh, just international. But in Japan, as you can imagine, national news, minute to minute. And it showed, uh, the video showed police officers eating cup of noodles to stay warm. How's that for a little bit of PR? So what cup of noodles did is actually it epitomized the belief in post-war Japan that a better life could be achieved convenience, comfort, and they got what we have. And that is convenience, comfort. Let's do it quick. It's in, it's instant gratification, fast foods. That's what we do. Japan's first convenience stores opened in 1969. And no surprise here, they were the primary marketers of cup of noodles. And the first, oh, this is hilarious. And this, and, and I think this says it all. Uh, the first Ginza cup noodle event that was held by Nissan, which is the company that owns this, that he owns, uh, it was in front of Jap- uh, Japan's first McDonald's, which had opened four months earlier. And cup of noodles, one of the first foods sold in vending machines. I mean, it's very cleverly packaged and it's perfect for a vending machine. All you do is pour hot water on it or today you just take water and put it, put water in the cup and put it in the microwave and you're done. Uh, the first cup of noodle vending machines ever uh, installed near the Tokyo offices of uh, the big financial newspaper. So it was still pretty expensive at that time. Fresh noodles were cheaper, but over time, as you can imagine, the manufacturing process improved, prices dropped. And now we have cup of noodles, uh, which for the most part, college students look at as the mantra of good, healthy eating. And it's just an insane, it's a huge uh, amount of money that is spent on cup of noodles around the world. And that's a hell of a story. That's that's how you get to be an instant zillionaire. I don't know if he's still alive. Uh, He may very well be. I'm looking at a picture of him. Uh, I mean, obviously he's no youngster. And uh, it's a portrait of him. And strangely enough, what's he holding? He's holding a cup of noodles. Incidentally, the real name is Cup Noodles. And Cup Noodles doesn't really roll off the tongue. So Cup O' Noodles is the one that works. This is KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.